Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. Firefighting crews hope to take advantage of calmer weather in the coming days as they continue to battle the massive Dixie Fire. The blaze has burned more than 725,000 acres, but several evacuation orders have been lifted and people are returning to their homes. As of this morning, about 5,200 residents still remain under a mandatory evacuation order. The fire is one of four currently burning in Northern California that has topped 100,000 acres. So far this year, while Wildfires have burned more than a million and a half acres in California, an increase of nearly 600,000 acres from the same time last year. Last year was the state's worst fire year, with more than 4 million acres burned. While the Dixie firefight continues, some communities that were badly damaged by the blaze are looking ahead to the recovery process. And according to Plumas County Sheriff Todd Johns, help is coming from the state. One of the requests that I made to OES and the governor were, were that they give the county a loan until this process is finished. And they officially sent a check to the county for $5 million dollars. The reason why that's important is it allows the county to continue on with basically normal activities during this time and to cover the costs of this fire. The State Office of Emergency Services has sent a team to the town of Greenville, which was decimated in the blaze. Its members are looking to find properties where they might be able to build out housing. Sheriff John says starting tomorrow, the state will begin cleanup in burned out areas of Plumas County. The state will come to your property and start removing hazardous materials, things like solvents and things like that. After that process is done, which I'm told may take as long as two to three weeks, there will be a next phase that will happen is phase two, which is the actual debris cleanup. And sometime within those two phases, we will let owners return to their property. John says at that time, property owners can look for items of value. When it comes to repopulating areas like Greenville, John says the infrastructure needs to be in place first as power, sewer, and water lines have been damaged and may need to be replaced. Recovering from wildfires can often take years, and for victims of the Dixie Fire, they only have to look to the nearby town of Paradise, which was devastated by the campfire in 2018. The Paradise Town Council recently directed staff to come up with a plan that would allow fire victims to continue to live in RVs parked on their burned-out properties. The plan would extend an existing emergency ordinance for another two years. Paradise's Town Council is expected to vote on this measure next month. At a recent meeting, Lawrence Graham was one of several Paradise residents to get emotional as he tried to convince the council to extend the ordinance. Now I'm going to be homeless because I didn't have insurance. I'm maintaining my property. I have power, water, everything you need to have properties clean and tidy. And just need time. Just need time. I mean, if I had money, I'd build right now. But I don't. Just need time. 
streets. The council has expressed concerns about people without emergency permits who have been living on properties without septic systems or trash removal services. Paradise residents have been allowed to live on their properties and RVs as long as they showed some progress in the rebuilding process. But many have found a long waiting list for contractors. And as the California report has been reporting, many families are still in financial limbo as they await some sort of financial relief from the fire victim trust set up by Pacific Gas and Electric. Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone? hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years. Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. State regulators have confirmed they've launched an investigation into recall election gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder. The reason? Reports that Elder, a Republican and prominent conservative radio talk show host, did not fully disclose all of his sources of personal income. Earlier this month, the Los Angeles Times reported that Elder failed to disclose his ownership of the business Lawrence A. Elder & Associates. After the Times story, the California Democratic Party filed a complaint with the state's fair political practice Commission. Candidates' financial disclosures are supposed to help the public determine whether a candidate might have a conflict of interest involving decisions he or she might make while in office. The Elder campaign says the incomplete disclosure was a mistake and that it's been corrected. Elder is currently considered the leading candidate seeking to replace Governor Gavin Newsom through the recall. Let's turn to privacy and what's being done to protect yours. In 2018, state lawmakers passed the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's supposed to give Californians more knowledge and control over what companies do with their personal data. Then last year, California voters passed a proposition creating the California Privacy Protection Agency. It has the mission of defending people's privacy rights. The Privacy Protection Agency is just starting to get up and running. In fact, it doesn't even have office space yet. But in her first interview, the California Report did talk to the agency's chair, Jennifer Urban. She's a law professor at UC Berkeley and privacy expert. We began our conversation talking about why a state privacy protection agency is needed. If you give people in a free market notice of what's going to happen, then they can make a choice. But we all know that didn't really work. We all know that um, if you try to read a privacy policy from 2010, certainly, often they would be impenetrable. You couldn't really figure out what was happening with your data, and there wasn't any chance to make a choice. So one of the most important things of the new laws is that it actually gives consumers a choice. It actually requires that businesses be clear about what they're doing and gives consumers a choice to opt out. 
Let's get practical. Let's say I'm a Californian right now, and I want to know what company X is doing with my data. And maybe I want to go beyond that and have company X start purging my personal data. Do I go to the company with that demand? Do I go to your new agency? Or do I go to the state attorney general's office, which I know is supposed to be doing most of the initial data privacy enforcement work? Great question. What you do right now is you go to the company. There should be a straightforward mechanism by which you can make these requests and they should respond. If you don't get a good response from the company or no response, then you go for the moment to the attorney general. The attorney general on their website has a tool that will walk you through um, how to send a complaint to the company and you can also complain to the attorney general and then they will take it from there as part of their enforcement work. And take it from there means what exactly? What's going to tangibly happen? Well, right now, the the Attorney General um, will send a letter. They've been sending letters to companies and telling them you're not in compliance. Um, they've said that most 75% have just come into compliance and done what they're supposed to do under the law. Um, over time, they have other options. Um, they could take the companies to court um, if they continue not to comply with the law. Once we have the new agency doing the administrative enforcement, um, we will be able to issue fines. Um, so we'll be able to fine companies if they are out of compliance, up to $7,500 per, um, per violation. So if a company is violating the rights of, you know, 100 or 1,000 consumers, that quickly adds up. You know, when it comes to data privacy, your agency is charged with policing some of the most powerful and richest companies on the planet. Can Californians have confidence that you'll have the people in place and the resources to actually do the job? Yes. The agency has a lot of tools at its disposal that will allow it to work on behalf of consumers and protect them. Um, One is the fines that we just talked about and the injunctive relief. Uh, Another is the fact that although the agency's budget is not particularly large um, compared to the budget of some of the companies we might be regulating, um, we do have a steady $10 million a year that is allocated to us by the proposition, um, and that is sufficient money to be able to have a strong investigative and enforcement team. Um, So it's not something that we have to depend on the legislature appropriating every year. Um, But at the moment, already we have more resources than any other privacy enforcer has had in the United States. We're the first, first agency dedicated to privacy, and we do have, I think, the resources to get started and protect people's privacy. All right. That is Jennifer Urban, chair of California's new Privacy Protection Agency. Thank you so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you. A state judge has ruled that a California law that allows gig economy companies to treat their workers as independent contractors who aren't eligible for benefits instead of as employees is unconstitutional. California voters approved the law last year through a ballot initiative, Proposition 22. That initiative was bankrolled by such companies as Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, which spent more than $200 million campaigning for the proposition. Labor unions opposed it. In his ruling, Judge 
Frank Roche argued that the law is unconstitutional because it limits the ability of future legislative action to protect the rights and safety of workers. Uber says it will appeal the judge's ruling and expects Prop 22 to be upheld. The law will remain in effect until the appeals process is exhausted. The recently released census results show Latinos make up the second largest ethnic racial group in San Diego County after white people. But KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim says more and more Latinos see themselves as multiracial. The number who marked two or more races on the latest census rose by more than five times in the last decade. That includes Mario Torres, a mariachi musician with a quick smile who lives in Chula Vista. Five years ago, he learned more about his multiracial roots through genetic tests and the history of mariachi. You know, learning that I'm, I have Zapoteco, uh, Purepecha from Michoacan, Oaxaca, you know, and, and these indigenous tribes and learning more about my own personal history. His mariachi group, Mariachi Torres, which includes his wife and two kids, sing and play songs in Tapotec and Puripecha, a nod to their roots. I want to acknowledge also the indigenous part. I want to acknowledge the other parts too, because it's me. If I don't know my history, if I don't know my roots, then I don't have an identity. He marked down several races on the census and wrote in that he's native Mexican-American mestizo. The census is particularly confusing for Latino people. Since 1980, it's had a two-question format. It asks if you're Hispanic or Latino and then your race. That's because it designates Hispanic or Latino as an ethnicity instead of a race. Now, people are increasingly recognizing their complex racial and cultural identities, both on the census and for the Torres family through their music. For The California Report, I'm Cristina Kim in San Diego. Support for the California Report comes from SF MoMA, presenting the exclusive U.S. exhibition of Nam June Beck, a visionary global artist who bridged art, music, performance, and technology. Learn more at sfmoma.org. California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about healthcare on the web at chcf.org voices. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for Monday, August 23rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles. The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.